Germany's social market economy combined free markets with a strong welfare state. It becomes the social democratic party. Yes, we can. Education, education, and education. Hello and welcome to the Centre Think Tanks podcast, the Centrist podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will Barber-Taylor, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Sir David Hansen, the former Labour MP for Delling from 1992 to 2019, Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Wales, 1999 to 2001, Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Prime Minister Tony Blair from 2001 to 2005, Minister of State for Northern Ireland 2005 to 2007, Minister of State for Justice 2007 to 2009, and Minister of State for Security, Counterterrorism, Crime and Policing 2009 to 2010. Welcome to the Centre Think Tanks podcast, David. Good morning, Will. That's a long CV there for introduction. Well done. <laughs> Yes, but a, but a, a very varied one and a, a very interesting one, one that we will be touching on um, throughout uh, this podcast. And I'd like to begin with, obviously, um, what has happened recently, which has been the local elections and, and, and the regional elections in um, Northern Ireland. And, and I'd like to begin by asking you, um, what is your general impression of how the local elections have, have gone across the UK for um, for each party. Well, I think uh, I mean for uh, for the Labour Party, I think it's been a reasonably good election. Um, they, they are local elections, so there are local variations. You I mean even in London, you'll see that there has been you know, some councils that have been lost in London, hmm. largely on on performance issues such as Croydon, and there's been other gains such as Westminster, which are historic. Hmm. So they're very much local elections, and they were taken at a high point for Labour at the last uh, time these were counted. But across the UK, there's been uh, I think a swing to Labour. Uh, which is, you know, positive for the Labour Party, uh, given that where we are and where the Labour Party is in uh, in the midterm elections, uh, Liberal Democrats have made some gains, uh, self-evidently, and they've made gains predominantly in areas where the Conservative vote has collapsed in the south. And if I were a Conservative going into these elections, I'd have been very worried about holding my seat. So that those who've done so are in areas where they're obviously traditionally been very strong because uh, in, in, in my old constituency for Parliament in Delhin, uh, we won the seat again, 15 Labour councillors, nine independents, four Liberal Democrats and two Conservatives in a seat that is now held by the Conservatives at parliamentary level. Um, so across the board, and Scotland, you know, again, uh, Labour's made progress and has won seats in Scotland. So you know, in England, Scotland and Wales, there's been strong progress for Labour, strong progress for the Liberals, and a, a falling back for the Conservatives, and people looking to independence, I think, as well as, as an alternative to all the parties. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And, um, of course, um, as, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, you spent time as Minister of State um, at the Northern Ireland office, and, of course, the results in Northern Ireland have been um, quite remarkable with, with, with how Sinn Féin has done. On that point, um, how successful do you think devolution has been in Northern Ireland? And do you think that there are any ways in which devolution could be improved? Uh, and, and, and is that something that you think we're going to see in um, the forthcoming years? Or, or, or do you think it's unlikely, given the, uh, the power in, in imbalance at Stormont? I think we've got to look at this historically, Will. I mean, devolution has been a success in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. Uh, it has provided local control of local services. 
uh, for predominantly most of the last 25 years. There have been gaps and there is a gap at the moment, but overall devolution has been a success. It's brought all political streams, both your political and uh, nationalist union streams into government. Mm. And that's worked quite successfully, you know, with Ian Paisley, with Peter Robinson, with Arlene Foster as first minister. And we just had an election now where for the first time ever, probably largely as not just because of Sinn Féin's advance, but also because of the splintering of unionism, that there's a first minister potentially for Sinn Féin. Um, Power sharing was about power sharing. So I, I would hope that those people who are from the unionist tendency would get into government mm. and would work on the issues of health, education, planning, agriculture, culture, uh, all of the things that the devolved government does, because that devolved government provides real services to people on the ground and its absence has been you know, really felt. And when I did the job for two years, I ran the Department of Finance, Department of Culture, Department of Housing, uh, other departments, but I ran them as a minister who didn't have a local mandate in mm. Northern Ireland and was taking decisions without the consent of the people. There's an opportunity to deliver real services and to tackle some of the real issues that the Assembly in Northern Ireland is responsible for. So I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely disappointed that um, there's not an Assembly up and running in terms of a government now. Mm. And uh, this week, uh, you know, there will be the chance to elect the first minister for Sinn Féin and deputy first minister. If the DUP don't step up to the plate on that, that'll be disappointing, not for the, you know, not for, not just for me personally, but also for the people of Northern Ireland who've spent last Thursday voting in an executive that they believe can deliver services for them locally. So whatever the wider issues of Brexit, the border, any future border poll, all those things, there's a whole pile of services spending billions of pounds worth of investment that need political direction on a cross-party basis in Northern Ireland. That's what, that's what should happen, in my view. Mm, absolutely. Do you think that the reluctance of unionists to be involved in the formation of, the, of a government may, in fact, push people who may be in the middle more towards um, Northern Ireland becoming a part of the Republic of Ireland, that they might think, well, you know, we've got unionist politicians here who aren't willing to work um, with, the, uh, with the nationalist politicians like Sinn Féin. Maybe, you know, we should go, maybe we should try it with um, the Republic of Ireland. Maybe we should try for reunification because the current system isn't working. Do you think that that's a, a, a fear, that it could turn people who, who may lean more towards unionism or may, who may be in the middle away from wanting Northern Ireland to remain a part of the UK? I think the biggest threat and the biggest mistake that the DUP particularly made was supporting Brexit. Because under Brexit, before Brexit, when we had the uh, part of the European Union, people could be British, people could be Irish, but there was no border, there was free movement, people could look to being British or Irish in a European Union, people were European Union citizens as well as being British or Irish. And therefore, the issues of border and the issues of the Good Friday Agreement of not having a border were ones that were, were manageable. The moment the DUP supported the idea of Brexit, the logic of that ultimately leads to where we are now, that there has to be a border, as there is a Calais between France and, and Britain, somewhere between the Republic of Ireland and the, the north of Ireland or the rest of the United Kingdom. And the EU has a legitimate demand to have that sort of border control somewhere to check on goods. Equally, 
people who don't want a border have a legitimate demand as well. And, and the mm. whole Brexit issue has forced this to the forefront in a way that we told the governments of all parties and people who were voting for Brexit around that issue prior to the referendum, but which has been really focused now. So, so where we are now is the DUP are using the protocol, which the government negotiated, to support a border in the Irish Sea as opposed to our land border, um, that protocol, which was negotiated and which the general election in 2019 was fought on, they're using that as an excuse now not to go into government. That's an issue that needs to be resolved, but it's not one that should stop people going into government because going into government in Northern Ireland is about what the services are provided for in Northern Ireland and whether or not we have a United Ireland downstream, a border pole downstream, a continuation of the same arrangements, some other border put in some other place or you know, maintained where it is now under the protocol. Those are issues which have to be resolved and which in many ways are irreconcilable, but which are not about the fundamentals of what the election should have been about last Thursday in Northern Ireland, which is about how do we deliver the services to the people of the North, Northern Ireland, while we have an assembly in place. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Do you think then, just, just looking back on uh, everything that has happened since the 2016 referendum, that those who supported Brexit, who supported Leave, might now feel that it would be better that Britain stayed in the European Union? And do you think that eventually we're going to see some move towards maybe not full membership again, but Britain going closer to the European Union, building closer ties to the EU? Well, one of the options that we discussed in Parliament in the run-up to the 2019 election after the referendum was the idea of maintaining a membership of the single market and the customs union whilst leaving the political institutions of the European Union, such as the European Parliament, the Council of Ministers and other issues. And that, that was voted on in the House of Commons and nearly got through. And it strikes me that, you know, even... This is, you know, I would think for a Conservative, which is Mrs Thatcher introduced and supported the single market, mm. the idea of free movement of goods and services through uh, the countries of the European Union would have been, and still could be potentially, a positive way around resolving that tension of the border. Because the paperwork involved in the border, be it at Calais or be it somewhere in the Irish Sea, is tremendous for both importers and exporters of goods from the European Union and from the United Kingdom. But the irreconcilable issue is that there has to be some form of border, inverted commas, because it cannot be that we have goods going from England or Scotland or Wales to Northern Ireland and then going through into Ireland and then potentially through into the rest of the European Union or vice versa, without some form of check, if the logic is that we are a third-party country to the European Union. Mm. And if there are borders at Calais, then the logic has to be that there has to be some sort of check somewhere in in the country at large in relation to Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland. And that's why the protocol was put in place. And I think the whole thing should have been a single market customs union, even if we, we left the European Union. And there may be scope at some point to look at how that works again, because it's in everybody's interests to not have queues on the, the Dover side of, uh, of, of Dover Calais, or to have the difficulties thrown up by the protocol. Because the people who are unionists feel part of the United Kingdom, and a border wouldn't exist between you know Liverpool and London. Mm. And I understand that argument, but equally, 
the people of Ireland and the people of the rest of the European Union need to have that protection for their integrity of their imports and exports. And therefore, there needs to be something somewhere. So it's, it's irre irreconcilable at the moment. But one possible long-term solution would be something we put forward before the 2019 election, which is how do we get a customs union single market operating that benefits all parties? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'd like to uh, turn now to your time as prisons minister, minister of state um, for prisons. What do you think, looking back on that time and then looking at the state of prisons in the UK at the moment, what do you think has been improved and what do you think has gotten worse? Um, I, th I think if I look at the whole stream, well, what, what needs to be done with, with, with prisons is to make prisons effective for rehabilitation mm -hmm. and to make sure the people who go into prison are the people who need to go into prison for the severity of the crime that they've committed, but actually have some benefit from being in prison when they are there. And what we tried to do in government when, when I was in government is really threefold is first of all to try and look at how we divert people from prison in the first place by strengthening the number of community sentences, by making them more effective, and by making sure that people you know, don't necessarily go to prison for eight or ten weeks for what are you know, relatively low-level crimes. But there's a community-based penalty that is severe, that is strong, that helps deter future criminal activity, that punishes in part, but also provide some support and training. Because you know, the, the, the key thing on this one is if someone goes to prison for three or four months, they may lose their home, they may lose any job they've got, they may not have time in prison to be rehabilitated. So the, the key thing is, is prison should be, first of all, for people who uh, need to have longer term sentences. Mm. And I think what's happened is we've lost that over the last sort of uh, 10 or so years. We've lost that ability to have community based sentences strengthened to the extent they should be to keep people out of prison who shouldn't be going to prison in the first place. Secondly, you've, you've got to, I think one of the things that may have improved, and this is a long term gain, I think there's the political parties of all spheres should be trying to aim for this, is to try and make prison for those people who go for longer than six months, one year, two years, three years, four years, a place where they can be rehabilitated, learn skills and training, mm -hmm. and reintegrate back into the community with support for employment, for housing, and dealing with some of the problems that may be through alcohol, drug addiction, mm. uh, exploitation, or other things, got them into prison in the first place. Because prison should be around punishment, but it should also be around changing lives. Uh, and I think that, you know, what, one of the things that, that is, is always a challenge, and it's still a challenge now, is how you integrate that through the door, community-based penalty into the community after people have served a prison sentence. Mm -hmm. um, in, in a positive way. And that's one of the things that, you know, I mean, I'm currently involved with uh, some voluntary organisations dealing with, with, with the prison service. And one of the key objectives that we've got is to try and make sure that we focus on employment, housing, skill development in mm -hmm. prison and through the gate to outside of prison so people can reintegrate in a positive way. Mm -hmm. on, on the issue of um, skills, how important do you think it is um, for those prisoners who, who, who perhaps need um, new skills or, or, or need help um, with how they will deal with life outside prison? How important do you think it is that they can get those skills um, whilst in prison? And, and what do you think would be the best way to improve it so that it's easier for prisoners who want to learn new skills to be able to learn them 
whilst serving a prison sentence? Well, one of the things that we got to do, and I, I did a report for the Welsh government on, on, on prisons a mm. couple of years back uh, on this very issue, and it's one thing we've got to do now. There, there are big skill shortages in the United Kingdom at the moment. There are skill mm. shortages through our... Brexit withdrawal with people leaving the country. There are skill shortages through retirements in a whole range of you know, key skill areas. And there are new jobs for the future where skills are not yet up to standard. So what we should be trying to do is to link particularly those people who are in prison with those potential skill shortages and link with businesses outside of prison who can help support training inside of prison on those areas for skill shortages. Because, again, many people go into prison for relatively short sentences of one year, two years, three years. There's opportunities in there to, to have investments in skill training. And one of the keys to stopping reoffending are the three stabilities of life, which is job, home, and support for any challenge that you had, like drug or alcohol addiction, addiction before you went into prison. So what we should be trying to do, and I think this is you know common to... What I tried to do as a prisons minister, what most prisons are still trying to do, and it's an ongoing process, mm. is find a way to ensure that the people who come into prison, when they're in our care, leave prison with a better opportunity to have employment, housing, and tackling some of the challenges that they face. And therefore, using now um, links with outside companies, using now skills assessments for the future, using prisons as places whereby we can help train the academies in there, helps people go through the gate in a positive way. And we did that uh, you know, in, in the Labour government with companies such as Timpson, who provide you know, training academies in some of the prisons that we've got. Hmm. We did it with major utility companies like British Gas. We did it with Network Rail. There's a whole pile of companies out there who can have potentially opportunities to offer employment in areas where it's difficult to recruit or where there are skill shortages, where there are people who, with that trust and support, can do that job who've been through the prison system. Mm -hmm. I'd just like um, to now turn to the issue of parole, because there have been some instances of um, quite high-profile um, prisoners or, or people, uh, prisoners who've been involved in quite high-profile cases who have been um, paroled and there has been a certain amount of um, outrage both from uh, the, the government and the press. I'm thinking of um, Colin Pitchfork and, and, and more recently um, the mother of baby P. Um, to what extent do you think that this outrage is justifiable and, and that something has to be perhaps done to the parole system? Or, or how much do you think it's an example of the government and, and certain elements of the press wanting to create a, a culture war issue around parole and, and, and the way that we parole prisoners? I think the, the, the answer to that question is that the key thing for any parole system is the risk to the community for the release of the person who is potentially up for parole. Mm. Be it someone who's served 30 years for murder or be it someone who's served you know, five years for, for a lesser offence, the key issue for the parole board is risk. And I know the parole board take that extremely seriously. Mm -hmm. They will do a very thorough assessment and they have to determine whether there is a risk to the community of the release of the individual or whether the individual is in the right place to be released at that time. Now, there will always be challenges because there will always be victims who will be uh, upset at the potential release of, a, of an individual. Mm. There will always be concerns from the press about whipping that up or making a statement about that. But the key issue is a solid, sensible assessment of risk. And 
there is always going to be a role for ministers ultimately in making a judgment and asking the parole board potentially to consider again if they make a judgment and the but, but the parole board retains its independence and the parole board has that job and we, we've had you know instances in the past when ministers have re, re, removed parole board you know chairs because they've not agreed with the decisions made i think the the key thing is is to try and establish a system which is in place which is there to establish risk to establish assessments from all, to liaise and understand and work with victims when there are serious cases that are going to come up for parole, to listen to representations, but ultimately to make a decision, independent of political interference, on what is the risk to the community of the release of this individual. Absolutely. We can always, in potentially as well remember, in, as, as in the case with uh, Colin Pitchfork, I think, be recalled if mm. there are concerns mm. raised once the parole has been granted. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I'd, I'd like to turn now um, to something that is uh, related to the pandemic and, and something that Centre uh, did a lot of work on, and that was um, people who were excluded from the government's self-employment uh, income support scheme and um, the furlough scheme. And, and this was something that um, you supported in, in terms of those people should have been um, included. Uh, why was that something that you thought was an important issue? And, and why do you think that the government never decided to include those people who had been excluded from the support schemes? Yeah, I think there's, um, there's, there's two aspects to that. First of all, there are, there are a number of people, around about three million people, who were either self-employed uh, or uh, employed in, in, in other ways that didn't you know, didn't qualify for the uh, furlough scheme the government put in place. But that meant that they were, I, I've known people who were former constituents of mine who uh, had real financial difficulty mm. because of their self-employment. Their business closed down effectively during that time. They couldn't gain any income because they couldn't do their particular jobs, but they were not qualifying for the government's furlough scheme because they were not employed by somebody else. They were self-employed. That seemed to be a distinction that is very unfair because ultimately... Those businesses need to survive the, the COVID pandemic, need to come out, and, and at the end of that period are going to be, again, producing tax revenue for the government and producing services that people require and providing goods for sale, but are in a self-employed uh, setting at the moment and therefore didn't qualify for the scheme. So it struck me as very short term in relation to the government, because ultimately, I don't now know, I generally don't know, Will, how many of those three million businesses have survived that two-year period and are fit and proper and running mm. now, having gone through the two years of that furlough scheme not being in place. So that it struck me as a, as a short-term um, mistake by the government not to include self-employed people in the furlough scheme. Um, what we can do about it now, we've gone through... You know, the COVID scheme, the furlough scheme is winding down. It's very difficult to do that, anything about it now. But I think that in, in the event, which I hope never happens, that we have a similar situation again, people, the government need to look at how do we sustain businesses, whether they are self-employed or people who work for companies, through the pandemic in a way that sustains the business for the long term. Because... That sustaining of the business is about the future wealth creation in the country. And it's something I think you know, Richard Shunak missed a trick on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and in, in terms of the economy, we're obviously seeing um, economic difficulties at the moment, not just for the, the, the UK, but um, worldwide. How much of that do you think 
um, is a, a, a result of the pandemic and, and, and the aftermath of the pandemic? And how much of it do you think is the result of what we've been um, seeing happening, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, the uh, Russian war in Ukraine? I, I mean, do you, do you think that there is a, a clear distinction in whether one or the other has influenced the, the current economic I, I think we're, we're in the middle of a, of a wide-ranging storm. Mm -hmm for yeah. which the United Kingdom is potentially in one of the worst positions of other European uh, countries and world countries to deal with. And that's simply because we have, I think, three storms brewing. We have the impact of a two-year COVID plus, two-year plus COVID mm -hmm. pandemic, which has obviously taken the heart out of many businesses, suppressed demand, and has caused great difficulties for a large number of businesses, and has built up a, 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 a government tax bill by funding things such as the furlough scheme and um, building up government debt, which has been very difficult for, for that. That's, not, that's number one. Secondly, we have the impact of Brexit, which is still, I think, you know, going to be felt very strongly because there are definite consequences there in terms of the free movement of goods, the ability to sell, the demand for goods in Europe, and you know a range of consequences related to that, which, you know, again, whether you voted for or against Brexit, they are there as either mm. teething problems or long-term problems, depending on your perspective. <laughs> and then we have something that nobody expected to happen, which is the impact of the Ukraine invasion by uh, the Russians. And the impact of that, not just in terms of uh, you know, uh, its impact in Europe, mm. but also its impact on energy prices, with Russia being a major energy supplier, its impact on a whole range of other you know, domestic issues, uh, there are those those three challenges are ones which are impacting greatly, and ones which I think, and this is again a key point, and this is where you know the, the current government needs to take some action. These are issues that need significant government action and significant international government action to resolve. They need significant intervention by government. Not because you know government is a great thing in itself, but because government is the place whereby these issues can be resolved at a national, regional, national, and international national level, and that's why we've got to have, in my view, active government from you know not just a, a political perspective, but also from an economic perspective to try to come together to stimulate the economy, look at some of the energy challenges, and not just take short-term fixes, but look at the long-term issues, uh, on top of which we have you know, wider ranging issues about the use of oil through global warming, global challenges. We have wider issues about food poverty in different parts of the world. We have wider issues about you know, the, the, the changing nature of automation. We have wider issues about uh, individuals being laid off while you know, companies are taking on um, different types of staff and more temporary kind of staffing regimes. All of those things mean that you know, you're in an ever-changing world, but with COVID, Ukraine and Brexit on top, that ever-changing world is even more complicated than normal and needs the government to focus on those longer-term challenges internationally as well as locally. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, just going back to the uh, the last time we spoke, we of course discussed the 1997 election and, and recently it was the 25th anniversary. Just looking back on that election again and comparing the calibre of politicians who were uh, part of that incoming Labour cabinet to the uh, current um, cabinet, what do you feel has changed about politics 
so that figures that we saw in um, in that in that cabinet are not reflected in a um, a, a current cabinet. You, you you certainly couldn't compare um, Boris Johnson's cabinet with um, Tony Blair's uh, cabinet when he was elected. What what do you think that says about the way that politics has has changed over the past twenty five years? I, I don't, it's, it's difficult well, to, to answer. I mean, if, if, if you go back to 25 years, which is, surprises me that it's that, that, uh, that long ago, but if you go back 25 years, we were at the end of a 13-year period of Tory government in 1992 to 1997 when it was 18 years. So there's that five-year period between 92 and 97 when the real changes happened. We were in effectively a period of seismic potential change because mm-hmm. the economy was in a difficult place. Trust in leadership had gone with John Major. Um, the, there was very similar feelings to where we are now, I think, in relation to a lack of direction over where government was going. There were lots of international and national challenges. And we had uh, a new leadership come forward with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and others uh, in the mid-1990s that were ready for 1997. But none of us at the time, I said to you last time, in 97, mm. expected to have the type of result that that we got um, in 1997. But what we did do with that result was that we knew what we wanted to do and the, the country itself was in a mood for change. Now, the, the question now, this is one I, I, you know, that we can debate, is are we at the same period in time now as we were in 1992, 93, or are we not? Mm. Are, are, does the country want change or does it not? Is it you're concerned about Partygate as a, as a temporary issue? Is it concerned about issues to do with COVID and response now? Or, or are there seismic longer-term changes? And as we didn't know that in 1994-95, we don't really know that now. Mm. So um, the, the, the next election will be fought on the record of the current government, the record and potential of the alternative current government, but also really, as all elections are, the future offer. And in 1997, people were ready for a future offer that offered you know, hope from the changes that were needed, offered a fairness and justice offered constitutional change, offered responses to the challenges of the 21st century, and they were encapsulated in the people who were in the cabinet uh, at 1997 um, by the way in which they approached the political issues of the day and by the way in which they approached the the, the, the issues of what their forward offer was. So I think, you know, whoever forms the next government and you know, there will be challenges on that, it will be about that forward offer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, We're coming towards the end of the podcast, David. It's been uh, excellent to have you on. And I have one final question. Now, I know that you are um, an ardent collector of political memorabilia. If if anybody hasn't uh, followed uh, David on Twitter or or followed his Instagram account for the cabinet, they certainly uh, should do. There are some remarkable things that you have got, David. But my final question to you is this. Is the one piece of political memorabilia that you don't currently have that you would really, really like to be able to have that you feel would set your collection off or, or you feel that would give it a, an added sheen, and an added glow? Oh, yes. I, uh, I'm always in search of the Holy Grail, Will. There's lots of Holy Grails out there. <laughs> um, I'd love to have an original Clement Attlee election address from the 1920s or mm. you know, earlier, 
um, uh, from 1922 onwards, sorry for, for Clement Attlee. I'd love to have a George Lansbury election address from earlier. Those are both two leaders of the Labour Party who had different issues in different times. I'd love a Keir Hardy election address. That would mm. be fantastic. Uh, but I'm very lucky. And you, you mentioned, you know, thankfully, and I appreciate your, your, your welcome to the In the Cabinet Instagram account. I'm just over over nearly 50 years now, just collected bits and bobs of, of election material because it tells a story. Mm. It tells you about what happened at the time. And my favourite piece I've got is probably the, the Ramsay MacDonald election address I, I picked up um, many years ago from 1892 in Southampton. And this is uh, Ramsay MacDonald as a young Labour Party member before the Labour Party was formed in the Independent Labour Party, trying to find a way to take forward the challenges of, of society, arguing for a minimum wage, arguing for devolution, arguing for trade union rights, coming fifth in the election, um, but ultimately being Prime Minister 25 years later and ultimately seeing the Labour government in the future putting some of those things he argued for in 1892 into practice. So election materials tell stories, and I, I just love collecting every one of them. Yeah. And uh, if ever I find an election address or a piece of material, I put it away. It's only in two filing cabinets, but um, it's, uh, it's 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 good stuff. And uh, anybody can visit my collection. I try and post one, two, or three things every day that I've got. I've got about another nine months worth left to post. Uh, I put them on the in the cabinet Instagram account. Anyone can follow it and uh, have a look on the past stuff I've posted already. Yeah, well, I would certainly recommend that they do because it's a it's, it's a fantastic um, account, and you know, as, as as I said, there's some great things there that you know people will not have otherwise seen. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast, David. If if people want to to find out more about you, if they want to um, follow you on social media, where should they go to to find you and and, and to follow you? Um... Instagram is in the cabinet, uh, and um, my Twitter account now is the uh, Right Honourable David Hanson. Dave Hanson, Right on Dave Hanson. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Will.